Welcome to the Metro Detroit Christian Church Podcast. Up next, you will hear a message delivered by one of our pastors or guest speakers. We pray that you encounter Jesus Christ as you engage with this message. The title of my teaching today is Pressing On for Power to Transform Lives. Pressing On for Power to Transform Lives. Subtitle, A Response to Michigan's Expanded Civil Rights Legislation. So I just really felt impressed by God that I needed to speak to what happened legislatively in our state this week. Those of you who don't know, our civil rights legislation, um, Elliot Larson Act, in I think it was passed in the 70s, was expanded this week legislatively to cover and protect gender identity, sexual orientation, and sexual expression. Um, so now the LGBTQ plus community is protected as a civil right um, under our state law. And <clears throat> I just felt the need to address the philosophy behind that's prevailing worldwide today that has led to the advancement of the LGBTQ agenda, which resulted in the passing of this legislation this week. I, think, I believe God wants a response, wants me to give a response. Um, and so I'm seeking to give one today. My response will not be perfect. Many are more articulate than I am on these matters. But... I sense I have to speak. And it's important that the biblical worldview about these matters be articulated. So my first point that I want to look at is understanding sexuality in the context of creation and the fall. So our prior legislation under the civil rights, covered things like race, color, national origin, age, sex, and height. And these have a backing in Scripture. So let's look at skin color, for instance. Mankind, according to the Scripture, is one race, one blood, but with different colors of skin. So look at this verse in Acts 17. He is made from one blood. God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. I love this verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. So, I just looked up skin color, did a little research, fascinating. Skin color is determined by the amount of pigment called m melanin that there is in your epidermis, your skin. Melanocytes are the cells that make the melanin. The number of melanocytes is the same in all people. The word melano comes from the Greek word melas, meaning black. So at the deepest part of your epidermis, 
at the deepest part of everyone's epidermis on the planet, we're all black. Black Lives Matter. How much melanin is produced by our melanocytes is determined by UV exposure, our genetic makeup, and the size of our melanocyte cells. So differences in skin color depend on how much melanin is produced and then released into the upper layers of your epidermis. So we are one race with different skin colors. To mistreat a person with one skin color or to give preferential treatment of somebody else with another skin color is wrong. Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 2.17, we're to honor all people. So to enact civil legislation to provide equal protection under the law for people of all skin colors, this is godly and appropriate. Now, the formation of gender identity and sexual orientation, is that genetic? The results of a 2019 study published in Science Magazine, and this was the largest genetic investigation of sexuality ever up to that point in time. This study closed the debate around the existence of a so-called gay gene. Ben Neal, a geneticist at Massachusetts General Hospital and at Brand Institute, he led the study looking at thousands of genes for nearly 500,000 subjects. And in his summary of the findings of their research, he says this, and this is a quote, it's effectively impossible to predict an individual's sexual behavior from their genome. The report finds that human DNA cannot predict who is gay or heterosexual. Furthermore, sexuality cannot cannot also be pinned down just by biology or psychology or life experiences. So gender identity and sexual behavior and the impulses of body and soul that drive these realities, they must be understood in a broader context of spirituality, psychology, sociology, and biology. As does every other aspect of the formation and expression of the human personality. It's complex. Have you noticed we are complex beings? So gender identity and sexual expression are deeply, are deeply spiritual realities. Okay, I've just, I gotta repeat that because I just got sidetracked by something that took place in the front row. Gender identity and sexual expression are deeply spiritual realities. 
because their origin is in God. Do you know that one of the words used to describe sexual expression in the scriptures is rivers? The same words that's used to describe the moving of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1.27 says this, Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. Then in the next verse, Genesis 1.28 says this, this, is, this next verse is coming, coming down the pike all the way from Adam who was created by God. And the oral history carried from Adam through his descendants into the life of Noah and then from Noah into Abraham and his descendants and ultimately Moses wrote it down through direct inspiration from God's presence himself and through oral history and gave us the law of Moses, gave us the book of Genesis, and here's what Adam has to say and God about God making man in his own image. It says, so God created man in his own image. Can you imagine hearing this from Adam? He knows. He experienced it. He saw God. He woke up out of a sleep and saw his wife there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So there it is, right there. Here we have it. Gender identity occurring by the word and fashioning of God, who is a spirit. Did you know that God is a spirit? God, the Father, who is a spirit, has taken up residence in the physical body of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of the incarnation and the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. God has now found a home in a physical body, and now he is seeking, God is seeking to inhabit a body of people on the earth. It's actually the same agenda as the devil. It was God's agenda first. <laughs> so here we have it. Gender identity occurring by the word and fashioning of God, who is a spirit. And here we have it. Sexuality. Being fruitful and multiplying. Being an expression between a man and a woman under the blessing of God and the commandment of God. He commands fruitful, enjoyable sexuality. So when the fallen angel Lucifer, Satan, the serpent, entered into this perfect environment of gender identity and sexual expression, he did it for the expressed purpose of attacking God through God's image bearer. So we have to, we have to look at this, 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 this person, this, this, this personage, 
Satan. Revelation 20, verse 2 calls him the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. 1 John 5 says he has an influence over the entire world. Ephesians 2 says he's handling, he's a handler. The, the devil is a spirit in the physical atmosphere of our planet who handles men and women, producing lust both in their bodies and in their minds. So this spirit produces a boundary-breaking force within humans. That's the devil, the serpent of old. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 talks about what the devil produces in people. It's called the son of man. The, the, the man of sin, not the son of man, no, no, no. The man of sin, the son of perdition. And what the old man nature does who has been produced by listening to and responding to the devil, this nature opposes all that is God. Jesus in Luke 10, 19 says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So the devil is the enemy of God. He is God's enemy. He seeks to create in his image bearers a, an opposition to everything that is called God, anything that is of God, the devil wants to produce an hostile nature to God. Satan is real, a malevolent evil being in the earth, and he's the enemy of everything that is of God. When Adam and Eve fell, they fell into Satan's domain. And the divine order of things for mankind and the created order, it broke into a million pieces. The fall is real and it was devastating for humans. It broke them. Fragmented them produced the condition the Greek word calls hysteria. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hysteria means you literally can't reach the wholeness of God. It's a force that produces alienation and separation and, and fragmentation and poverty. Poverty of mind, poverty of soul. This is what mankind inherited when they fell. Pastor Lisa and I and um, Tony and Melissa and Dave and Shelley, I don't know if anybody else was there last night. We saw a pre-screening of the movie Nefarious yesterday, um, which does a masterful job of portraying demonic possession and communicating the realities of Satan's evil agenda 
in attacking everything that is of God in the earth and by seeking to influence and inhabit God's image on the earth, men and women. One of the purposes of this movie, according to its creator, Steve Dace, is to reintroduce the reality of evil into the public conversation. I, I really encourage everyone to see it. Um, in, in terms of your children, I don't think it might be a good thing for your children, but maybe for your teens, there is one scene that is quite, there's a, there's a, um, a, um, a torture scene where a guy gets capital punishment and it's quite graphic. And your teenagers might need a little prep for that, but I don't think it would be bad for them to see it. But you, you need to discern that as parents. That's your decision. But I suggest every adult see it. I would take my teenage sons to see it. What? Would, would somebody deal with this front row? Elizabeth? <laughs> so, <clears throat> Satan entered into a context where God had just created gender identity and sexual expression as part of his plan to bring the kingdom on the earth. Therefore, if we're going to discuss gender identity and sexual expression, we have to introduce the revelation and reality of the force of sin. It must be reintroduced into the worldview of human psychology, sociology, biology, and civil government. The full revelation and reality of the demonic realm at work in the social order of mankind must be included in every discussion about this issue. We have to see the devil. We have to understand the nature of the devil. We have to understand sin. We have to, under, we, we have, to have our eyes wide open to the nature of evil and the nature of the devil's agenda against humans. If we don't have a true understanding of evil, we're not going to experience the fullness of salvation. All the dimensions of the power of the cross go unexperienced without the unveiling of Satan and his works. Here's what God says to Cain after we now have the first family marked by sin, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And this is what God tells Cain in Genesis 4, 6. I think it's very kind of God, actually. He says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. 
It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is the job that every human has to engage with since the fall of man. This is, this is telling us that sin is before it is an action you do. It's a force that actually has almost a personality to this entity. It crouches and is waiting for an opportunity to get into the human body. And God says, but that is what every human has to face. And God says, you must master this process. You must discern the force of sin and learn how to keep it out of your body. Get it out of you. I believe God is was giving Cain an opportunity to receive more help and instruction. I don't think God's just telling him, you've got to figure this out. God was inviting him in to revelation and a teaching process that would have made him an overcomer. Aren't you grateful that God wants to help us with sin? Aren't you grateful that God wants to help you with sin? That's really, really, really good news. Some of you are going to get good news today on a level you've never gotten it before. God's view of sexuality is good, blessed, part of a kingdom agenda and includes two genders, male and female. Sin has entered the scene and broken it into a million pieces. How many of you have seen some of the progressive reports of the numbers of gender identity and sexual expression combinations there can be into the 70s now? It's mandated, I believe, in Ontario. The Ontario public school system has to teach, I believe, seven genders now. Sin has entered the scene, and Satan is wanting to obliterate a very good and healthy reality that God created. When man sinned, when man entered into conversation with this malevolent, fallen, powerful creature, yes, there was punishment, there was judgment. But I believe, I don't believe, I, just, I know, there was also compassion in the heart of God for the victims of Adam's sin. Do you know that we are all victims? Now, when's the last time you've heard me say that, or Pastor Lisa, from the pulpit? We've, we've worked for years to get victimization out of your mindset. 
you're, you're all a victim. It says in, in Romans 5, 12, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So thank you, Father Adam. You're a victim. Sin has entered into your life. You were born, you were conceived in it. So now sin isn't just crouching at the door. Sin has gotten in. And it's in the fabric of your formation. Is God mad at us for how this force of hostility against God is fragmenting all the different aspects of our personality? I think God is, has compassion. Compassion doesn't compromise a standard. Compassion is love and power going to work to rescue somebody who's a victim of not being able to achieve the standard and giving them what they need to no longer fall short of the glory of God but actually manifest the wholeness of God. That's compassion. So I I really believe that the, the whole story of Israel under slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt in the book of Exodus is a picture of humanity under the tyranny of sin. And here's what God thinks about humanity that's under the tyranny of sin. Exodus 3, 7 and 8 says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. That just makes me makes me just light inside. I can remember, you know, one time in my 20s, early 20s, and I'm, I'm literally, the, the force and weight of sin and curse are resting on me. Sexual addiction and um, psychological instability, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge. I'm feeling on the verge of breakdown where I'm going to just lose it, not just lose it like have a bad day and cry, but break into some type of psychotic mess. And I'm, I'm, I remember being at my, uh, my desk, I'm, I'm holding on to the desk on the brink of, of, of mental illness and insanity taking over my being. And I was beyond, beyond quoting verses. <laughs> Saying, if you don't rescue me right now, I am lost forever. And in that moment, a wave of love and power came over my being, rescued me. Aren't you glad God is compassionate? I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. You know, sin 
is an awful taskmaster. For I know their sorrows. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and a large land flowing with milk and honey. God just continues to reveal himself throughout the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 33, he appears to Moses and says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious and I will have compassion. Thank you, God. Jesus Jesus manifested this compassion of God for humanity tormented by sin and demons. Look at this in Matthew 9, 35 to 10, 1. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, <laughs> teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the government of God, and healing every disease and sickness Everything that got shattered into a million pieces when mankind fell. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless under the curse of the law. Demonized because they couldn't fulfill the law. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus then called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Let's go all the way back and drive out uncleanness in the gender identity and sexual expression. It's the compassion of God rescuing his, his image bearers. So we have to understand sexuality in terms of creation and the fall. We have to understand sexuality in terms of the compassion of God. And we have to understand sexuality in the context of law and the gospel. What is going to frame our understanding of human identity and expression? This is the question. What is going to be society's framework for understanding how thoughts form in a person? How emotions connect with these thoughts, how the body's physiology manifests the chemical, hormonal, and electrical impulses that flow out of thought and emotion, and how words and behavior then get expressed from this interconnected flow of thought, emotion, and physiology. And finally, how does the spirit world connect with this process of identity formation and expression. What is going to be the framework to understand human 
identity and expression. Do you know that the church, pastors, leaders, apostles, prophets are called not just to preach sermons. They're called to restore God's biblical, spiritual worldview to the culture. So when the Lord said to me yesterday, I want you to preach on this, I said, well, they don't need this. And then he said, well, first of all, Peter, they do need this. They need to hear it again. And secondly, you need to preach to the state. How do spirits, God being a good spirit and the demonic realm being full of evil spirits, how do they intersect with the human experience? God gives us the law once Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the race, the human race. Scripture says that God gave the law because of sin. Once sin entered into our beings and is now propagated as we bear children, as we bear children, we're multiplying the sin nature in the earth. Yeah, yikes. That's why the gospel must be preached in every generation. Not just preached in, like, in context like this, but preached and counseled and pastored and taught in little groups, one-on-one, medium-sized group, constant teaching of the gospel. The law was introduced because of sin. And God saw the million pieces of broken humanity and all the ways that was trying to express itself through sexuality. 70 different combinations right now. That'll only grow in the coming years. And he says this in Leviticus 18, 22 to 24. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual... Now, why is it detestable? Because what he created was so wonderful. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. And and he lists other ways, not just homosexuality or bestiality. Because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you have become defiled. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says, If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So God is is serious about this. 
Now, God doesn't put sexual deviance in its own category. He puts it in, in all of God's sin lists in the scripture, and I love reading the sin lists of scripture. Here's one of them. Romans 8, 28 to 32. Even as they, mankind, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Another way of saying that is when God comes and he reaches out his arm to you and says, you know, sin's crouching at your door. It wants to defile you, wants to get into your body and just break you, fragment you emotionally, psychologically, relationally, and financially, and every way else. Now, I want to help you. God is not saying, get, deal with that problem. See, I want to help you. And when a person says, no, thank you, God, I don't want your help getting rid of sin, then he goes, oh, okay, I'm going to give you over to the consequences of your choice until you want my help. I'll be here. I'm not leaving. You're, you're, my, you're my precious image bearer. Do you think I'm going to abandon you? I'll be there. So he gives them over to do what they shouldn't do, to a debased mind. And then men became filled, men and women became filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. So this thing that's deserving death, this sexual deviance that God says, let him be killed, also applies to gossip. It's like God is serious about the way sin manifests in the human personality because what he created is so awesome. The predominant philosophical framework guiding today's cultural discussion, study, and decision-making surrounding sexuality What's guiding academians, politicians, many religious leaders, and the general population as a whole? What is lacking is an understanding of the spirit dimension to human sexuality. Even those with a biblical worldview who ascribe to the biblical bans on adultery, fornication, homosexuality, even these people, they often have a flat 
legalistic, intellectual, or conceptual view of these rules. They're the law of God. Don't do this. God says don't do that, don't do that. It's a choice. If God says don't express yourself sexually that way, just don't do it. Well, that is actually not a complete revelation of God's dealing with man concerning the various impulses that take place within their mind, heart, soul, and body. The law is holy and right and good, according to Romans 7. But the law, according to Scripture, is not corrective of the inner nature. A rule doesn't change you on the inside. Scripture says the law was given by God at 1500 B.C. to be a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. It's an, an external guide to lead somebody to Christ who is the only one that can change one's inner nature. The only one who can change how thoughts get formed, how emotions come out of those thoughts, how one's physiology expresses those thoughts and emotions. Christ is the only one who can change that flow. That's why God decided after 1,500 years of using the law to correct and curb and protect humanity, he decided, I'm done. (laughs) It's time. There was a point in history 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years after we received the law, God says, I'm, I'm through with the law system. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to, I myself am going to take on a human body and change the law system in the earth. So scripture says that when Christ hung on the cross, he nailed the law system to the cross. Look at this passage in Colossians 2:14 from the East. Let's read it together. Having You know, I think it was Senator Moss on the floor in response to the passing of the Elliot Larson's expanded civil rights protection um, just quoted the verses that were used against the LGBTQ community over the past 30, 40 years. In defiance, we've, we've thrown off Leviticus 20. Well, God threw it off 2,000 years ago. Yeah. 
He obliterated the handwritten document consisting of the rules, don't sleep with men if you're a man. If you're a woman, don't have sex with a goat or another woman. And everything in between. He obliterated that. The one which was against us, which was directly opposed to us, he removed it out of the middle of the conversation of sin and God. Now, he's left the law in place for human societies to curb evil and protect the population. So it's kind of a weird kind of, he's obliterated it, yet it's, he's left it in place. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, the law is in place, according to the glorious gospel. The law is in place for anybody who's having these impulses, like, I can remember when my parents occasionally would discipline me. I can remember times turning them inside, going inside, saying, I hate you. The law is in place for that. That's the beginning of the murder of fathers and mothers. Anybody ever say that in your heart about someone who's disciplining you? One or, one or two of you. <laughs> the law's purpose to curb destructive behavior. And according to this scripture, sexual deviance is destructive to humans, just like murder is. It's not healthy for humans. So the law is left in place for those who want to kill their parents. <laughs> Something's in place that says, if you kill your parents, it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> it's left in place to, to, for those who will cultures that will still embrace it, create an environment of protection and safety and actually prosperity for that nation. But God is not using it to reform people. It was a temporary solution according to the scriptures. It was a temporary means of reformation 
until mankind reached a place, a capacity to become sons of God. We're just going to kick out maybe maybe 2,000 years of religious spirits right here with these next scriptures. God, well, let's look at this scripture, Galatians 3, 21 to 24. For if there had been a law which would have given life, if there was a law concerning sexual deviance that could have actually corrected people who were having whatever preferences taking place inside their body, if a law had been given that could do that, then righteousness would have been by the law. But this is crazy. The scripture has confined the whole planet under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. God's put us under this taskmaster called the law, this tutor, so that he can break into history with something that's too good to be true. That's available not just for those who have powerful wills. It's available for anybody from top of society to the bottom of society. That nobody can boast about this thing. This is God's plan. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Yeah, it was appropriate. When my, one of my siblings told my mother to shut up at a dinner table, it was appropriate that my father got up and lift, literally lifted him out of his seat. We had a little breakfast nook that was about this big, and all six of us would sit in this place. And he lifted him out over above the table and marched him up and just like doing some physical things to him all the way up to his bedroom. He said, you will never say that again to your mother. That's the law. That's good. Before faith came, we were kept under guard. That, that put a protection in our family system. We were kept for the faith that would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Do you know that Christ is the answer for the world? He's way bigger than our church meetings. He's a system of government, Christ is. He is the new order. Christ is the head of a new government, of a new way of expressing the government of God in the earth. And has everything to do with civil government. Galatians 4 goes on, verse 3 to 7, he says, When we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. 
When you were immature, you were run by the impulses of your body and mind that was connected to the spirits in the air. That's a state of immaturity. Okay. Don't, don't raise your hand. Don't look at anybody. <laughs> no elbows. No turning around and looking at somebody else in the room. <laughs> How many of you have some type of impulse going on? I'm not talking about just sexuality. Just any kind. Any kind of impulse happening in there. That's not appropriate. Trigger of jealousy. Trigger of insecurity and I don't belong. Trigger of, I'm going to take over the world. And <laughs> Shapers unite. I'll never forget, I went to Russia years and years ago, and I was on this big ministry team with people from all over the country with Randy Clark. He was ministering in Moscow, and this guy asked to talk to me. I was on the ministry team, and he took me up way up. We were in this big coliseum. During one of the breaks, he took me way up in the top of the coliseum and says, I've got to just tell you something that's going on with me. I've never told you anybody. And he began to <clears throat> explain this, talk about this fetish he had. I'm not going to even tell you what it is. You don't need to know. It was tormenting him. When you're a child, you're in bondage to that. You're a child if you're in bondage to your jealousy. You're a child if that wave of insecurity that has marked you since a, ch a child and was in your family line, is still functioning in you every time you walk into a room and you're just like, you just want to cringe. You're, that's a child state under the elements of the world. That's under the powers of the air that are preying on your vulnerabilities. God doesn't want us children. Praise the Lord. He goes, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the rules that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into the place where your thoughts are generated. God has sent something into the place where thoughts originate. And out of the abundance of the heart, all sorts of other things happen. You begin feeling. You begin, your, your brain picks up the thought and transfers it to chemicals, hormones, and electrical impulses. If you, if you can get a new origin of thought, if you can have not just you trying to apply the scriptures. If you can have a spirit come into your body, the spirit of the son of God, in your heart, out of the abundance of the heart you think, out of the abundance of the heart you speak, out of the abundance of the heart your identity gets formed. If you could have the spirit of the son there, then change is possible. God, would you, in Jesus' name, Father, deliver us today here in this assembly and anybody who hears this teaching in the state of Michigan from religious teaching and religious ideas and law-mindedness that lingers in our subconscious that's keeping us immature. God, you, in your economy, you said it's time 2,000 years ago to have sons on the earth. It's time for sonship to begin manifesting in the nations. And God, we have been up and down and all around over the past couple thousand years. I pray you'd establish sonship in this assembly here in the state of Michigan. You would raise up your ecclesia that would, it would, would last and travel from generation to generation. I pray that the preaching of the gospel will be in these people's mouths. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are not a slave to anything, any impulse. Oh, thank you, God. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Many in the LGBTQ community have encountered the law when they brought their issues of sexuality to light in the church. And a unilateral understanding of the law, flat conceptual understanding of the law, a flat conceptual understanding of the gospel caused the church to say it's a choice. All right. 
Worry is a command. We are commanded by God not to worry. Don't worry. How many of you have ever found yourself having thoughts and feelings of anxiety just floating around your subconscious, producing some type of chemical response in your, your body, even when you decided, I'm not going to worry. So it's more than a choice. It's a choice accompanied that's coming out of revelation of the gospel that makes the difference. Coming out of the spirit of the sun in the heart. So, many in the LGBT community have encountered law or mixtures of law and gospel. Or they've encountered very sincere believers who have not grown up in the power of the gospel. And hence, out of this has come the argument, the bans against conversion therapy in the world. Conversion therapy is, says to those in the LGBTQ community that if you convert, there's ways you can have therapy to convert yourself. You can change. Conversion therapy is the practice of attempting to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. And as of 2023, just last month, 23 countries have bans on conversion therapy. It's banned in the U.S. in 20 states and a number of local counties and municipalities. The practice is banned on minors. You cannot, in a health, a, 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 a public health or a psychological context, you cannot work with a minor to help if they are dealing with issues of sexuality. You can't help them come out of their, whatever their sexual struggles are. If you do, you're disobeying the law. These, are, these bans are primarily in place, place in practices of health pro- concerning the practices of health professionals. But advocates for a ban on conversion therapy are pressing in aggressively for guidelines to extend these bans to religious groups and the unregulated non-medical counseling sector of society. So here's an investigation that was done in Australia concerning conversion therapy. It says, across Australia, organizations who believe that LGBTI people can and should change, these organizations are hard at work. Conversion practices are hidden 
in evangelical churches and ministries, taking the form of exorcisms, prayer groups, or counseling described as pastoral care, disguised as pastoral care. They're also present in some religious schools or practiced in the private offices of health professionals. They're pushed out through a thriving network of courses and mentors in the borderless world of cyberspace, cloaked in the terminology of self-improvement or spiritual healing. A study of Pentecostal charismatic churches found that LGBT parishioners were forced, were, were faced with four options. Remain closeted, come out but commit to remaining celibate, undergo conversion therapy, or leave the church. The majority took the last option, though typically only after agonizing attempts to reconcile their faith and their sexuality under a conversion therapy system for a while. First Corinthians 6, 9 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what we have here is God's strong right arm reaching down into time and into people who are dealing with covetousness, substance abuse, thievery, and sexual issues. God's saying, I'm reaching out to any individual struggling, having these dynamics going on inside them. And he's offering something called washing. Sanctification. Justification in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. God's offering a baptism. An immersion. I spoke um, at Georgian Banoff's ministry school this week. It's an online ministry school. And George and I had a great connection. It's been maybe almost 20 years, I think. 15 years, 10 years, I don't know. Long time. George was saying, you know, the problem we have in the church across the world is that they're built on Romans 3 and 4 justification by faith and they've missed Romans 6 and I said yes Romans 6 is not just 
introduces not just the God sent Jesus, his son, into the world for you, and he died on the cross for you. He, he took the punishment for you. If you will believe that, God will count that act as righteousness for you. It'll be a judicial decision God makes, and you will be righteous in his sight. And I said, yes, that is not the true foundation of righteousness. That's partial. That is true. But we, we don't have the complete foundation of righteousness until we reach Romans 6, where it says, okay, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus have been into his death? Well, this, this baptism is the foundation of a new Western civilization. Western civilization is on the brink of collapsing. And it's not going to be rebuilt with preaching the gospel of justification by faith through an external belief system. We have been charged by Jesus to baptize people into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been charged by Christ to get sin and demons out of bodies and get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit into bodies. That and that alone will rebuild a nation. So <clears throat> we are heading toward a cross immersion April 8th. And I say this every six months and I have conviction about this. At some point before we get to our cross immersion, I, I come to a place of conviction. We need this day more than we've ever needed it before. We need a baptism foundation to our existence. And we must grow up in this to help our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that don't have a baptism foundation. You might be saying, what's a baptism foundation? A baptism foundation is when you have a spontaneous springing up from your inner man that's not your producing. You don't work it up. It works itself up. And it's like a, it's like a, a, a hidden spring in the ground that just is there. And God has revealed himself in Jeremiah that he is the fountain of living. God is a fountain. He's a spirit. And he's like a fountain of living waters. And he actually wants to go to the core of men and women and restore gender identity and sexual expression. So he can get about with his kingdom business of subduing the earth with us being fruitful and multiplying and not bringing forth the old nature but seeing the new nature formed in people. I want to just charge you whatever level of baptism you've known, 
let's throw off our I know that filter and prepare ourselves over the next weeks to come to a new place of immersion into Christ. We are being called, what is happening in our culture right now, I've said it before, God is allowing the beast system to literally take over the world. Why? Because he's revealing our impotence. The impotence of our lives. Not to condemn us, but to set the stage for the most massive Worldwide revival history has ever seen. Built on the gospel he gave Paul. Where this man who was wired a certain way encounters Christ. And in that encounter, something inside Christ transfers, everything inside Christ transfers to him through a superabundant measure of grace. It's beyond his figuring out. He can't get over it. He can't get under it. He can't get around it. It's completely surrounding him, and he carries this blessing wherever he goes. And he says, I've got to, I've got to disciple others into this. This is what it means to be in Christ. It's Christ in me. He's taken over my heart. And all those impulses that would have qualified me for death under the law are taken into his body. And I'm now the recipient of not just a little bit of life, eternal life. I'm I'm like, we've way underestimated eternal life. That's that's life that's going to endure. That's life that (laughs) when Christ comes again and I'm buried and we have to decide where our burial plots are going to be. She wants to be buried somewhere else that I want to be buried. We have to figure that out. <laughs> she at least said she'll see me in heaven. <laughs> wow. My body's going to disintegrate. Yours too. You can have your green burial. I'm going to have the one where the the grave's already paid for. (laughs) Because it's all about efficiency, isn't it? Saving money, even in death. (laughs) It's about the environment. (laughs) Plant me by a tree. (laughs) Ah! Now you know what we talk about. (laughs) Eternal life is like, I'm carrying it right now. And when Christ comes back, my eternal life is going to go find my body. And it's going to reconstitute me. I'm going to have, like, and I'm going to pick up where I left off in the functioning of nations. But now it's going to be with the physical presence of Christ on the earth. Uh, we're not going to just, we're not going to float around on clouds playing harps. The, 
the clear revelation of Scripture is that nations and governments will continue to function. I don't understand all this. But eternal life has me positioned for that realm being in a place of government there. How many of you want to be in government there? At least, you know, a low-level bureaucrat, you know, kind of <laughs> get on the Lord's payroll. Post office. Wherever you're positioned in that eternal order, it's going to be glorious. You know, I want to just close with these two scriptures. Look at this one in Galatians. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That means if somebody's dealing with whatever sin issue they're dealing with, and we, we read sinless, where sexual deviance is just one of many things. If you're trying to deal with those things by saying to someone, don't do it, even just a little bit, and you don't have the river, <laughs> hello, if you don't have the river, you're going to make a person twice the son of hell as, as you are <laughs> without the river, without the fountain of living waters. Even a, even a tinge of it. You know what this is? You know what this is? You know what's going on in the world? It's like bad. We're, we're almost close to a communist police state in Michigan. What, what is God doing? Putting pressure on you. 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 Me. You. Say you. Me. <laughs> He's putting pressure on you to bring forth living waters on the inside of you. He doesn't want you walking around with empty, powerless religion. He wants to make you a, a, a one that can help somebody come into your experience. Because you can only bring somebody into your own experience level. So... This is, what's the date of today? Yeah, thank God for iPhones. <laughs> or I would have been an hour late. Man, when that thing went off, you've got to be kidding me. I, went, I was right at the best REM sleep ever. I, anyways, I get distracted. <clears throat> 12th, April 8th. How many days is that? Math geniuses. That's good. That's right. <laughs> Between now and then, you need to get leaven out of your house. I need to get leaven out of my house. I mean, we need to like seek after law-mindedness wherever it's at. Just whatever, whatever is not the gospel of grace, whatever is not of living fountains, it's got to go. 
There's a world waiting for us to get this and then give it to them in this manner. Disciple them into living this way. So a little leaven leavens a whole lot. Last, last scripture. I want to gain Christ. Do you? I want to gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Man, talk about a crazy life. It's like power, suffering, death. Power, suffering, death. That is not, you, you don't, I, I'm telling you, you don't feel stable <laughs> in that kind of life. But Paul says, give it to me. Give, it, give me that kind of life. Hello? I just double dog dare you to step out of your little boring life and into life with Christ. Power, sufferings, death, power. Da sufferings, death, more power, sufferings, death, more power, sufferings, death, power to change a state, yes. sufferings, death. <laughs> we, we haven't arrived at this yet. You haven't arrived. Neither have I. So we got to get leaven out of our house and press on. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, so here's, one, here's your altar call. One thing you do today, forgetting those things which you are behind. Let yourself off the hook for everything. <laughs> you screwed up a thousand times. Let yourself off the hook. Let everybody else off the hook. One thing I do. I press toward the goal for the prize. I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many of us who are mature, who want to come out of this child state of being run by the elements of the world, anybody who wants to like be free from that, have this mind. And if anything else you think otherwise, if you're feeling a victim... God's going to reveal that to you, that there's a way out through Jesus. Yes. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained MDCC, let's walk in what we already have and go to the next level over the next month. Let's walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things for our citizenship. Biblical citizenship. The way nations get changed is there's got to be a group of people that have citizenship in heaven and they have authority to restore citizenship on earth to the nation they're in. You can't restore it without heavenly citizenship first. 
Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the work. Say, according to the working. Present tense. By which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So that's what I have to say about the Elliot Larson Expansion Act. Father, Father, <laughs> Father, Father, Father. Father, we're just going to just spend a few minutes with the Father. I want to pray, Lord, that our pastors would have a new, just new impartation of sonship in them. Me included. Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray for fresh baptism into Christ, not of your own making. Sonship. Lord, put the spirit of the Son in our thought formation center, our hearts. Lord, we're recipients. We're just recipients. We just receive from you. We just receive right now. There's nothing else to do other than to receive what you say. Yes. What you've done. Yes. Lord, we're forgetting, like, the command in the scripture to leave behind. Yeah. What is behind? Yes. And reach forward ahead. And I'm reminded of the opening that Aaron gave. Heaven is calling. And the hand of God is reaching out. This is what we're looking forward to. Pour out your spirit again, Lord. Pour out your spirit again. Pour out your love yes. again. Not in a sentimental way, but a powerful way, God. We're looking for power today, Lord. You gave us new definitions of things today, Lord. Refreshing. We must receive them, Lord. Not intellectually, but by our spirit. So with our spirit hands, we reach out. With our spirit hands, we reach out and we yeah. take hold. Yeah. With our spirit hands, we apprehend what you have given us, what you're pouring out, what you're working out in us right now, Lord. Open up sonship to us again, Lord. Open yes. up Galatians 3. Open up Romans 8 to us, Lord. Show us these scriptures. Let them be written on our hearts and define ourselves again, Lord. That the outflowing of our heart would be that I'm a son and that you're my father.
Yes, Lord. Open up the scripture. Open up the scripture to us. Lead us, Lord. Lead us in our times. I just see our times in the Bible, each one of us individually. The Lord is leading you. He will lead you. As you open your Bible, he will show you a, a passage to turn to and speak to you out of that passage. Open the, open the scriptures to us, Lord. Open it again, Lord. I say we're building on you. We're building on you, Lord. We're building on the foundation of your scripture, the foundation of your word. We're building on you, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord. You care about hearts. You care about our hearts. You care about what's going on inside of us, Lord, and you desire to touch those places. Touch those places that are deep inside of us that we don't even know. But you are touching those places, God. Touch hearts. Remove all heaviness, Lord. All heaviness. Not, you know, not to disregard the weight of anything, but to give that to you, that you would deal with it. Deal with our hearts, Lord. Deal with the pain. Deal with the shame. Deal with the anxiety. Deal with the grief. Deal with the stress. It's too much. It's too much. We weren't designed for this. We were designed to, to, to receive from you again. Lord, touch hearts. You care about hearts. You sent a man from California last week to us to deal with our hearts. I thank you, God. You see what we cannot see. Deal with our hearts. Do not let any bitterness remain. No unforgiveness. No secret anxieties. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves, not lie to ourselves and say everything's okay but to come to you, to run to our Father. Give us a spirit that cries out. A spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Father, I need your help. Father, I need your help. Help us, Father. Help me. I'm crying out to you. There's no other answer, God. Father, you're the answer. We cry out. This is the spirit of Christ in us to cry out to the Father. This is the spirit of Christ. Remove the religious veil about what the spirit of Christ is. It's the son crying out to the Father. It's the son saying, Father, help us. Define me. Give me your word. Send your spirit again, Lord. Pour it out. Pour it out. Yeah, God didn't hand back, stand back and treat the disordered mess of humanity as something remote. He didn't stand back from Cain. He was offering help. But God did 
that God did so much better than we could have imagined. He jumped into our disordered mess as a man, erupted out of the grave with the same vehement <laughs> cries that accessed every help we could ever need from the Father. The very vehement cries that were in Jesus Christ when he walked the earth and stayed a holy man are the very cries of Abba yes. Father that now inhabit our physical bodies. Yes. So when we cry out, we get the same access to the God who raises the dead. Yes. You want help? You want to go through a sin list with all humility and all faith in God? Jesus Christ took us by the hand inside the grave and said, Abba Father, help this one. It's by the faith of the Son of God I now live. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed wrestling with the Word and the Spirit as you engaged with this message. For more information, please visit our website at www.metrodetroit.org. And have a great week.